Bixby, and I'll be reading you today's Cape Cod Times, dated Friday, December 15th, 2023. We have a beautiful weather outlook for the weekend. Today, highs will reach into the 50s. It will be mild with plenty of sunshine. Tonight, clear, lows in the high 30s. Over the weekend, it will be high 40s and low 50s, again, with partly sunny and partly cloudy. On Sunday, showers are expected in the late afternoon. By special request from a few of our faithful listeners, we now present the lottery numbers. For Thursday's midday drawing of the numbers game, we have numbers 2, 6, 1, and 0. The evening drawing that day, numbers were 1, 2, 9, and 5. Thursday's mass cash drawing numbers were 6, 11, 16, 20, and 22. The Powerball drawing on Wednesday had numbers 3, 8, 41, 56, 64, and the extra ball of 18. And finally, for Mega Millions on Tuesday, the numbers were 8, 23, 44, 45, 53, and the extra ball of number 3. The lead story on page one of today's newspaper is headlined, Turning Haunted House into Two New Homes, by Zane Razek of the Cape Cod Times. Dateline, East Orleans. Over the past 20 years, a small, centuries-old house at 82 Monument Road has devolved into an eyesore. Creeping vines and branches engulfed the 1845 built two-story home clad in wooden siding. The roof was sagging and the inside was punctured with holes. Growing up, I was convinced it was haunted, said Jess Kimball, a 25-year-old boat captain who lived across from the house with her family. The Mayos, a family with ancestors aboard the Mayflower, once lived at the house, but Alice Mayo, the last owner, died around 2002. Jess and her sister, Sarah Kimball, age 27, had been waiting for something to happen since, but never expected to revive the property themselves. Today, the 1.7 acres dubbed Area 82 is the sisters and Sarah's husband Casey Furnaces' unlikely ticket to staying on Cape Cod. Buying an Abandoned House In 2020, the Kimball family bought the crumbling house for $200,000 from the owners, who gave them the right of first refusal due to the close relationship the two families had forged over the years. An excavator from Eastham's Brundage site work chewed away the house earlier this month to make way for two new buildings. One 1,680-square-foot, three-bedroom ranch where Sarah Kimball and Furnace, both 27, will live, and a 795-square-foot accessory one-bedroom dwelling unit for Jess Kimball. The sisters' parents will still live across the street. By Friday afternoon, the lot was cleared and construction workers were inside two sprawling six-foot-deep holes that will become the new homes, putting together the forms for the foundation footings. The project will be run by Furnace, who works as a project engineer for custom building company Labarge Homes in Harwich. Orleans-based engineering firm Ryder & Wilcox McKenzie Engineering Consultants of Brewster, and J.M. O'Reilly & Associates Incorporated of Brewster are also behind the project. 
Find good people. Find local people, because that's what ended up working for us, said Furness, as advice for others wanting to embark on a similar project. We're keeping it all local. Young people staying on Cape Cod. Sarah Kimball, who works as an analyst for a nautical software company, said the house could have wound up in the hands of a general contractor who would build the biggest house possible and then sell it for a couple of million dollars. I personally never thought I'd own something here, she said. Growing up here and watching the prices go up, I thought eventually I'm going to have to leave. Amid an airtight housing market and soaring prices, young people on Cape Cod and in Massachusetts are struggling to find inexpensive housing and instead are looking elsewhere, said Massachusetts Secretary of Housing and Livable Communities, Ed Augustus. The state has lost about 110,000 residents since the COVID-19 pandemic began, he said, mostly aged between 26 to 35. In many cases, we've invested a lot as a state. K-12 education, public higher education, they graduate, they're ready to start their careers and be productive, and they're finding that they're having to spend 40 to 50% of their income on housing, said Augustus. We're losing those people. The lack of housing has, in part, pushed the younger generation off the peninsula. Barnstable County's median age of 53.9 is 14.3 years older than the state's, according to data from the Cape Cod Commission. Stripping the house down. Plans for Area 82 were on hold for 12 months due to the town's demolition delay bylaw, which allows for a year-long pause on demolition permits if the property is on the historic inventory, earlier than 1920, or deemed significant by the Historical Commission. They also got stamped plans from an architect and a contract with a builder. After some trial and error, Sarah Kimball said they also secured a construction loan from Cape Cod 5, which offers one-step financing for the building of a new home. Payments are interest only for the construction period, and then convert to a standard fixed or adjustable rate mortgage, according to its website. The house was irreparable, said Furness. To meet today's building codes, a renovation would require redoing essentially down to the stone slab foundation, he said. As they stripped the house for demolition, Jess Kimball rescued salvageable wood, including one especially beloved floorboard she has nicknamed Big Bertha, and plans to use for her new home. Also discovered was a 150-year-old table in perfect condition. Magazines and newspapers from the early 1900s, fine china, and a record player that appeared to still work. Documenting the journey. The houses are expected to be complete by February 2025, Furness estimated. An Instagram account set up to record the project has attracted at least 563 followers. Neighbors down the street have commented their excitement to finally see something happen to the long vacant property, while others posted words of encouragement or advice. Recently, someone recognized the Kimball sisters while they were out, asking, are you the sisters building a house? And I was just so stoked because they have young kids in the community. I just hope we can inspire them to not have to leave unless they want to leave, said Sarah Kimball. I just don't feel like people should have to do anything unless they want to. So many people seem to have to leave now.
Provincetown Select Board vote moves town toward decriminalizing use of magic mushrooms. By Sam Drysdale of the State House News Service. Provincetown this week became the seventh Massachusetts community to move toward effectively decriminalizing psychedelic plants and fungi, such as psilocybin or magic mushrooms and ayahuasca. The Provincetown Select Board voted to approve a resolution Monday that instructs police officers to deprioritize cases involving psilocybin and calls for statewide decriminalization and for the Cape and Islands District Attorney to cease prosecution of people possessing, cultivating, or distributing psychedelic plants. The board voted 3-1-1, with member Leslie Sandberg abstaining, and Chair Dave Abramson voting against the measure. I've received a steady stream of emails, as have my colleagues on this topic, and heard people's personal stories, heard people speak here tonight, heard from my colleagues. All very moving stories, and I'm very supportive of this idea, said board member Austin Miller. Provincetown joins Somerville, Cambridge, Northampton, East Hampton, and Salem where elected officials have passed resolutions directing their respective municipal employees to no longer use resources toward the arrest and investigation of people growing and non-commercially sharing psilocybin mushrooms, according to grassroots advocacy group Bay Staters for Natural Medicine, who has worked with the municipalities to pass the measures. In Worcester, the plants are decriminalized for veterans and first responders only and the Amherst Town Council passed a resolution supporting decriminalization. Supporters say small doses of psilocybin can help people suffering from addiction, mental health issues, cluster headaches, and other medical issues. Some also tout recreational uses of the plants, which they say can bring people together for a spiritual experience, but unlike other drugs, are non-addictive. John Golden, vice chair of the Provincetown Board, said psychedelics could help address the opioid and mental health crises, which have hit Cape Cod particularly hard. We have a lot of people not being treated, and usually the medical profession says, let's treat them with antidepressants. We now have detectable levels of antidepressants in our water. That is insane. Everybody is being dumped and dumped and dumped with antidepressants all the time by the medical community, Golden said. If this could help cure the opioid crisis, it would be amazing, and we wouldn't have all those antidepressants in our groundwater. James Davis, who leads Bay Staters for Natural Medicine, said at Monday's select board meeting that psilocybin helped his brother stop using drugs after struggling with opioid addiction for years. The grassroots group hosts curated mushroom forages and educational potlucks and lobbies on the municipal and state level for decriminalization. This recent local push comes against the backdrop of an escalating battle over an initiative petition that could go before voters next fall to decriminalize psychedelic plants statewide. Bay Staters for Natural Medicine has pushed for these local resolutions and is supporting bills from Republican Representative Nicholas Boldiga, age 3589, which would legalize some psychedelic plants and fungi for people ages 21 and older, and similar bills from Democrats Representative Lindsay Sabadosa, 
and Senator Pat Jalen, H1754 and S1009, that would open up use of the so-called plant medicine, specifically psilocybin, psilocin, dimethyltryptamine, mescaline, and ibogaine to individuals ages 18 and older. The local group is advocating for lawmakers to change a ballot initiative by DC-based New Approach, who recently dubbed their campaign in the Bay State, Massachusetts for Mental Health Options. The DC group helped secure passage of similar ballot questions in Colorado and Oregon, and would set up a licensed regulatory therapeutic framework using natural psychedelics. New Approach's version of the ballot question which was certified by the Attorney General, would allow residents to be screened by a licensed facilitator who has gone through a state-regulated training process and, if approved, be administered psilocybin under the facilitator's supervision, according to campaign director Jared Moffat. Afterwards, they would continue to see the facilitator for therapy sessions where they unpack their experience. Davis has said that this approach would make psilocybin extremely expensive and is lobbying for lawmakers to change the question before it gets to voters. In Oregon, where new approaches helped make psychedelic mushrooms legal in 2020, a regulatory framework has led to tens of thousands of dollars in upfront costs for so-called psilocybin service centers to open and people who want to provide therapy with mushrooms have racked up licensing fees and education costs which are passed to consumers, Oregon Public Broadcasting reported. Davis and other local advocates are instead promoting a model where the plants are decriminalized and residents can grow and share their own supplies. Under Boldiga's bill, counselors would be certified to facilitate psychedelic experiences and could charge for the service but it would look less like the regulatory heavy strategy Massachusetts took in setting up the Cannabis Control Commission. The Provincetown Resolution references the U.S. Department of Justice's Cole Memorandum, which permitted communities to deprioritize enforcement of cannabis. Select board members discussed a potential advantage for the Cape Town if psychedelics were decriminalized and counselors could hold psilocybin experience sessions above board a benefit of tax revenues, a supporter says. Our economic analysis indicates this could generate nearly $13 million a year in tax revenues for this municipality, as well as many economic activity at stores that will serve clients that come here for retreats, Davis told the select board on Monday. He said that licensing counselors to host psilocybin treatment experiences, which would need to go through the state, could bring tourism to Massachusetts from folks coming from out of state. The Provincetown Resolution does not authorize any commercial sale of psychedelic plants, but supports the bills that seek to set up a license structure for therapists without an unelected control commission prone to regulatory capture by interests outside our communities. All five of the Provincetown Select Board members said they recognize the medical benefits and were supportive of decriminalizing psilocybin to be used by medical professionals to treat post-traumatic stress disorder, mental health issues, and addiction. But for the member who abstained, Sandberg said she couldn't support the resolution as written 
because it would support recreational use. I think how it helps people under medical supervision is amazing. I don't think it should be for recreational use, Sandberg said. People are going to start self-medicating. Chair Abramson said he wanted to bring the issue directly before voters at Provincetown's town meeting next spring. But Davis urged the board to take it up more immediately to send a message to the legislature amidst the ongoing ballot question battle. This is to make the state legislature look at what we're doing and say, oh, look at this, Golden said. There's a lot of towns. And the list, I mean, Cambridge and Somerville, they're not little places. I just think that Provincetown has always been at the forefront and we've just got to move forward. Needy Fund pitches in to fix car needed to get to medical appointments by Eric Williams of the Cape Cod Times. The pandemic hit this Upper Cape couple hard. Due to complications from COVID-19, the husband now must use a wheelchair, relying on 24-7 oxygen support. Medical bills have them struggling to make ends meet. Their car is an essential part of their lives, especially for medical appointments. But an emergency brake adjustment was needed to keep their vehicle safe. Thanks to your generous donations, the Cape Cod Times Needy Fund was able to assist with these critical repairs, preserving their independence, mobility, and lifeline to essential appointments. The nonprofit Cape Cod Times Needy Fund has provided emergency financial assistance to thousands of Cape Codders and Islanders since 1936. That assistance is made possible because of the continued generosity of neighbors helping neighbors. The Needy Fund provides short-term emergency assistance to Cape and Islands residents so they can continue to go to work and stay in their homes. People in need submit their requests for help to the Needy Fund, which in turn pays for the goods or services, a medical bill, for example, through a voucher system. No cash is given to Needy Fund recipients. Donations, which are tax-deductible, may be made online at theneedyfund.org. Checks can also be mailed to the Cape Cod Times Needy Fund. Those needing assistance may contact the Needy Fund at 800-422-1446. They can also be reached on Facebook and X, formerly Twitter. The fundraising goal this season is $1.6 million and every donation helps. Thanks to everyone who has made a donation to the Cape Cod Times Needy Fund. Total contributions to date, $507,500.33. New sand and beach grass added to Town Neck Beach in Sandwich by Steve Heeslip of the Cape Cod Times. Sandwich's storm-battered Town Neck Beach got its latest round of beach nourishment this fall. Weeks Marine, working with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, piped sand ashore from a hydraulic dredge working at the east end of the Cape Cod Canal to deepen the channel. The sand was used to fortify the protective dune that fronts the parking lot ahead of the winter storm season. In past winters, the area has been severely battered by erosion from northeast storms. The final phase of the project is now underway hand-planting beach grass all along the newly shaped dune to give it more resiliency. Looking for a holiday gift? Consider checking out The Thrift Store by Frankie Rowley of the Cape Cod Times. With the holidays just around the corner, you may find yourself with an endless list of people to buy for or in need of some kind of a holiday party gift. A common dilemma, but what if instead of buying new, you bought used? 
Thrift gifts, a fairly common phenomenon for younger generations, myself included, but an overlooked way to holiday shop overall. Thrift stores are full of unique and interesting finds at ridiculously good prices. Whether you're looking for a good book, a nice set of glassware, a record, or even a nice piece of furniture to give this holiday season, your local thrift store is a great place to look. Here on the Cape, there's a slew of thrift stores to pursue, but in an attempt to make your holiday shopping easier, here are a couple of recommendations of where to find a good thrift gift. Where to thrift a gift on Cape Cod. The Wakoit Congregational Church Thrift Store and Ella's Books. If you're in the market for a nice piece of art, a small knick-knack or a book, the Wakoit Congregational Church Thrift Store and Ella's Books is the place to go gift shopping. On the left side of the store lives Ella's Books a used bookstore filled with books of all genres for bargain prices. Speaking from experience, I've found so many books that are now in my library, such as The Sun Also Rises, published by Modern Library, at Ella's Books. Books are usually $1 to $2, making it the perfect place to shop for the reader in your life. As for the thrift store, pursue through the art selections. I found a framed print of Norman Rockwell's Triple Self-Portrait for $10 that now hangs above my bed. Along with the art, they have a decent selection of homewares, such as mugs, teacups, and kitchen supplies, as well as some fun knickknacks. The Wakoit Congregational Church Thrift Store and Ella's Books are located at 15 Parsons Lane in Wakoit. They're open from 10 to 2, Monday, Tuesday, Friday, and Saturday. Christ the King Parish Thrift Shop. If you've driven toward Mashpee and Falmouth on Route 28, chances are you've passed the Christ the King Parish Thrift Shop. With a clothing store, garage, tent, and boutique, there's a slew of options for a perfect thrift gift. The clothing store caters to all ages and has accessories. Plus, select clothing items are 50% off every day. The garage is full of old CDs, electronics, books, and more, but the tent is where I've found the most gems. From unique furniture items to framed art and reasonably priced housewares, the tent is full of giftable items. During my visits, I found tennis rackets and a Reader's Digest Classical Music Greatest Hits compilation record, which I gifted to my boyfriend, and Fleetwood Mac's Fleetwood Mac for a dollar. Needless to say, if you take your time to look through each building, you'll stumble upon something worth gifting. The Christ the King Parish Thrift Shop is located on Route 28 in Ketuit. They're open from 9 to 3 outside, 10 to 3 in the clothing store and boutique on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. The Cape Abilities Thrift Shop. If you're looking for a nice holiday gift for someone who just moved into a new place, Capabilities Thrift Shop is the place to go. They have everything from couches to headboards and a nice selection of kitchen and homeware perfect for giving. When I moved into my current house, I found all my dishes, a few good quality pots and pans, and some decorative Norman Walkwell plates for $5 each at Capabilities. There's certainly an air of higher quality secondhand goods at Capabilities, so the prices may be higher than other places, but the quality is top notch. If you're shopping for a vinyl lover, do not skip their record selection. They have a room in the back full of crates of records, plus a bookcase full of them by the drawers and dressers. Worth a look through if you want a cheap but good gift to give.
Capabilities Thrift Shop is located on Route 28 in West Yarmouth. They're open from 10 to 4, Monday to Sunday. To pursue items in-store, check out their Facebook group. St. John's Thrift Shop. Filled with cute glassware, china, and other goods, St. John's Thrift Shop is a quaint little store full of giftable finds. I stopped in last week while my sister was in town. She found a set of martini glasses that would retail for $50 at a place like Anthropology for $4 for a set of four. So stop in if you're looking for a smaller but still stylish gift. St. John's Thrift Shop is on Main Street in Sandwich and open from 10 to 4, Tuesday to Saturday. And finally, the Provincetown United Methodist Church Thrift Shop is a great place to stop by on the Outer Cape to find a good gift. Take it from fellow Times reporter Eric Williams, who wrote in a September article, It's a real community crossroads, a big space with an awesome vibe, and they play great shopping tunes. The best gift finds up here would be homewares, as a quick glance at their Facebook page will have you asking yourself if you might need a new coffee table or couch, too. The Provincetown United Methodist Thrift Shop is located at Shank Painter Road in Provincetown, and they're open from 10 to 2, Monday to Saturday. Retail sales rise 0.3% in November ahead of holidays by Anne Dinocencio of the Associated Press, Dateline, New York. Americans picked up their spending from October to November unexpectedly as the unofficial holiday season kicked off, underscoring the power of shoppers despite elevated prices. Retail sales rose 0.3% in November from October, when sales were down a revised 0.2%, according to the Commerce Department on Thursday. Sales were expected to decline again in November due to a myriad of issues, including uncertainty over the economy. Excluding car and gas sales, sales rose 0.6%. As they have been doing for much of the year, American consumers, a huge engine for economic growth in the U.S., hit the stores, shopped online, or went out to restaurants. Business at restaurants rose 1.6%, while sales at furniture stores rose 0.9%. Online sales rose 1%. Business at clothing and accessory stores went up 0.6%. Electronic and appliance sales, however, fell 1.1%. Sales at department stores fell 2.5%. The figures aren't adjusted for inflation. The urge to spend for Americans appears to have some running room, even after a blowout summer. Consumer spending jumped in the July to September quarter. Economists have been expecting spending to slow in the final three months of the year as credit card debt and delinquencies rise and savings fall. While consumers continue to face hurdles from higher borrowing costs, tighter credit conditions, and elevated prices, a still strong labor market, a positive trend in incomes, and an easing in price pressures should keep spending and growth positive for now, wrote Rubila Faroki, chief U.S. economist for high-frequency economics. U.S. employment data last week showed that employers added 199,000 jobs in November, and the unemployment rate declined to 3.7%. Inflation has plummeted in little over a year from a troubling 9.1% to 3.2%. While that's still above the desired level, the economy by most counts is likely to avoid the recession 
many economists had feared, a potential side effect of U.S. attempts to cool inflation. Yet people remain gloomy, according to the University of Michigan's Index of Consumer Sentiment. The preliminary December figures issued Friday showed moods have improved as more people see inflation cooling. We've reached the halfway point of our program, and regular listeners are aware that at this stage of our broadcast, we move to the obituaries. Our first obituary is for Robert Setheris, Dateline Mashpee. Robert M. Setheris Sr., age 76, of Mashpee, passed away peacefully at Tewksbury Hospital on December 11th. He was the beloved husband of Cheryl L. Setheris and son of the late Socrates and Virginia Setheris. In addition to his loving wife, Cheryl, Robert is survived by his children, six grandchildren, and many nieces and nephews. He was predeceased by his sister, Paula, brother, Michael, and son-in-law, Michael Pimentel. Robert graduated from Barnstable Vocational High School. He served in the United States Army from 1966 to 1968, and we thank him for that service. He worked as a shop foreman at Corson Cadillac in Hyannis for 15 years. Robert had a passion for fixing and building computers. He loved the beach, music, and dancing. He was a loving husband, father, grandfather, and brother, and will be dearly missed by all who loved him. Robert spent 10 years at Tewksbury Hospital with Huntington's disease. He received excellent care and it became his home. In lieu of flowers, donations may be made to Tewksbury Hospital on East Street in Tewksbury. Please note with donation for Patient Recreation Fund HD unit. Services will be private. For online guestbook and condolences, please visit the website of chapmanfuneral.com. Richard Dick Arthur Butler, Dateline Born. Richard A. Butler, age 86, a lifelong resident of Buzzards Bay, passed away peacefully on Sunday, December 11th, with his son Douglas and daughter-in-law Janet at his side. Dick was born on March 21, 1937, the only child of Lyndon F. and Hazel Crook Butler. He was the husband of the late Sally M. Albro Butler for 64 years. Following his marriage in 1954, he joined the U.S. Navy, serving proudly aboard the aircraft carrier USS Forrestal, and we thank all of the veterans for their service. After his discharge from the Navy, he returned to the town of Bourne, where he was employed at the Buzzards Bay Water Department and also at Wareham Feed Company, which was owned by his father. After several years of working two jobs, he chose to enroll in night school at Bridgewater State College, where he earned his teaching degree. For the next 20 years, he was a successful and respected teacher to countless seventh and eighth grade history students with the Bourne School Department, where he also enjoyed coaching football. In retirement, he spent most of his time with his beloved wife, Sally. They would often go to Foxwoods or Atlantic City, but most of their time was spent close to home. They together would walk the canal and go out to lunch just about every day, where many waitresses became some of their good friends. After the death in 2020 of his wife, his daily lunch outings and rides continued with his son, Doug. They spent countless hours together, usually reminiscing and often laughing about family stories of days gone by. 
In February 2022, Dick suffered a serious stroke that left him completely disabled and unable to care for himself. He moved into Cape Heritage Nursing Home in Sandwich. Dad will be remembered as a very quiet, respectful, and kind person with a wonderful sense of humor, who enjoyed golfing with friends, following football, reading war books, and all animals. Most of all, though, it was his family he loved the most. In addition to his son, he leaves behind other children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. Dad loved and forever missed his only daughter, Lynn Dawn Butler, who passed away in 1974 at age 11. He also leaves behind two very dear and lifelong friends and neighbors, Helen Smith and Teresa Gratis. We would like to acknowledge and thank Kathy, Lori, Dylan, and all the incredible staff in the Freeman Unit of Cape Heritage Nursing and Rehab Facility in Sandwich, who cared deeply for him and treated him more like family than just another resident. Rest in peace together with mom. We will miss you, dad. Visiting hours will be held on Tuesday, December 19th from 4 to 7 p.m. at Nickerson Bourne Funeral Home on MacArthur Boulevard in Bourne. Funeral services will be held on Wednesday the 20th at 10 a.m. at the First Baptist Church on Barlow's Landing Road in Pocasset. Burial will follow at Oakland Grove Cemetery on Shore Road in Bourne. In lieu of flowers, donations may be sent to the Butler Family Memorial Fund in care of Douglas Butler on Terra Terrace in Bourne. For directions and online condolences, please visit the website of Nickerson Bourne Funeral Home. Helen E. Stefanik, Dateline West Yarmouth. Helen E. Kopesky Stefanik, age 100, passed away peacefully in the comfort of the Pavilion Rehab and Nursing Center in Hyannis on Monday, December 11th. Helen loved unconditionally and lived her life with amazing strength, grace, and laughter. Born in Millville on July 29, 1923, she was the daughter of the late Anthony Kopesky and Sophia Zeschowski Kopesky. She is survived by her brother Michael Kopesky Sr. and her loving granddaughters. She is also survived by her son-in-law and several great-grandchildren and great-great-granddaughter Kayla, as well as many nieces and nephews. In heaven, Helen is greeted by her husband, John S. Stefanik, whom she married in Millville, Massachusetts on June 24, 1946. Her children, Nancy and James, her brother, Edward, and sister, Anne, and her great-grandson, Justin Parker. Helen graduated from hairdressing school and met her husband, John, and they raised their family in Chicago for 25 years, where she worked as a hairdresser before returning home to Massachusetts. She worked as a personnel manager for the former Haywood Schuster Mills for 26 years and later worked as a nurse's aide. She was devoted to her faith and loved spending time outdoors gardening. She always enjoyed dancing, country music, and traveling to Nashville and cherished spending time with her family. Helen's greatest gift was her unconditional love of her family and friends and her quick-witted, sassy sense of humor. She is deeply missed. Visitation will be on Friday, December 15th, today, from 9 to 10.30 at the Carr Funeral Home on Hill Street in Wittensville, Massachusetts, 
with a funeral mass following at 11 at St. Mary's Parish on Menden Street in Uxbridge, followed by burial in St. Mary's Cemetery. The family would like to extend their deep appreciation to the staff at the pavilion for the love and care they provided to Helen for the final month of her life. Angela Mosesso, Dateline South Yarmouth. Angela Mary Mosesso, the daughter of the late Angela L. Baldessini and Albert N. Mosesso, passed away at her home in Harwich at the age of 72 on December 11th. Angela was born in Quincy, sharing her first name with both her mother and maternal grandmother, a fact which she bore with great pride. She graduated from Boston State College with a BA in English Literature. The school's motto, Education for Service, would govern her, the trajectory of her working life, leading Angela to pursue a career in teaching. This pursuit would eventually lead her to San Francisco, where she spent nearly a decade starting out in the resource book room of Mercy High School. Angela would embark on the long journey of receiving a master's degree from San Francisco State University, teaching alongside the Sisters of Mercy during the day while taking classes at night. Years later, she would recount jokingly that her first quote-unquote child was born in the wee hours of the morning during the spring of 1984 with the completion of her master's thesis, The Shedding of Old Skin. Virginia Woolf's influence on Sylvia Plath, one of the first works in comparative literary analysis published regarding these two luminaries of 20th century women's literature. However, by 1986, Angela had begun to miss home and moved to Brewster. It was in the fall of 1986 that Angela would begin her career teaching English at Nauset Regional High School in Eastham, one which would occupy her for the next 31 years. While she taught a number of different classes in her early years, Angela would become most well-known for her role in instructing the freshman honors and senior advanced placement English classes at Nauset. For nearly two decades, she helped to develop the critical skills of literary analysis in hundreds of students, teaching such works as A Separate Piece, Homer's Odyssey, Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, and Wolf's To the Lighthouse, to name just a few of her favorites. In 1991, Angela would welcome her only child, Robert Peacock, who she always affectionately referred to as Bobby. For the next 32 years, he would serve in many roles as a confidant, a co-teacher, a constant traveling companion, and lastly, as a caretaker, remaining by her side until the moment of her passing. Angela is preceded in death by her parents, Angela and Albert, and her sister, Cheryl. She is survived by her son, Robert, her brothers, and her sister. Her son would like to thank Margot of the VNA of Cape Cod, who helped Angela to pass in peace with dignity. Angela will be buried at Pleasant Hill Cemetery in Wellfleet at 11 a.m. on Saturday, December 16th. Former students, colleagues, and friends are welcome to attend the burial ceremony if they wish. The Ask Carolyn column today is headlined, Grown Stepson Introduces His Half-Sister as Just Their Daughter. Dear Carolyn, last week, we, that means me, my husband, and my four-year-old daughter, visited my stepson, who was 27, and his fiancée a few hours away. 
While we were out to eat, we ran into one of my stepson's colleagues. When he made the introductions, he said, this is my dad, Harry, his wife, Amy, and their daughter, Ashley. It stings a little that I'm just his dad's wife, but I didn't enter his life until he was a senior in high school, so I'm not really surprised. It hurts a lot that our daughter isn't his sister or even his half-sister, but just their daughter. I blanched in the moment and my husband squeezed my hand. I don't think my stepson noticed. Part of the reason it hurts is that I very much wanted a second child, but won't have another for a whole host of practical reasons. I assuaged my guilt about having only one child by believing she has a sibling, but apparently the sibling disagrees. How do I handle this? Do I say something to him? Ask my husband to say something? Do things to foster a sibling relationship? Signed, What's in a Name. Dear What's in a Name, The reality is your daughter has a sibling. Yes, ouch. But commandeering that reality to help you feel better ignores another reality. You don't get to co-opt other people's lives to fix your feelings. Your stepson's time and loyalties aren't in a grab-and-go case for your convenience. This is aside from the fact that a brother who is 23 years older and lives hours away, and I'm guessing never shared a home with your daughter, couldn't conceivably serve the day-to-day emotional training role you seem to have in mind. And that being in her life as, to his mind, an obligation could hurt her more than it helps. You say you want the two to connect in the context of feeling bad about an only child, but you have those only childlike conditions in your household regardless, even if bro agrees to be 100% on board with the idea of a sibling bond. Which brings us to a third reality that could be the central argument, except that it was easier for me to construct things this way. An only child is not something to feel guilty about. It is not a disservice to your daughter. It is not deprivation. It is not dooming her to loneliness. Not getting along with siblings is lonely too, just with no privacy. Does that mean parents who have a second kid should feel guiltier? It's not stunting her emotional growth or guaranteeing she won't learn to share or whatever other unfair only child tropes have lodged themselves in your mind. Getting along with sibs is a skill. Being comfortable alone is a skill. Making friends outside the home is a skill. Entertaining oneself is a skill. There's no one childhood configuration that is the perfect setup for mastering all the skills. Loving parents are better parents. The rest is a crapshoot. Now, do you still want a stronger relationship with your stepson? For its own sake and not some ulterior parenting goal? then great, make the effort. Whether he reciprocates is up to him. So don't saddle the effort with any expectations, but otherwise, why not? Friendly overtures rarely turn up on lists of regrets. Lend a helping hand this holiday season at Yule for Fuel, reads the headline of today's Best Bets column by Frankie Rowley of the Cape Cod Times. The Wellfleet Harbor Actors Theater's Yule for Fuel holiday benefit show returns for another year, helping provide funds for the Lower Cape Outreach Council's Fuel Assistance Program. Their second show of the season is scheduled for 7 p.m. on Saturday, December 16th. 
featuring performances from Blue Central, Long Time Traveling, Kim Moberg, and more. Their first show was held on December 9th. It helps us raise money for people who need help with fuel during the winter. Nicholas Ward, Managing Director for the Wellfleet Harbors Actors Theater, said, It's a great lineup of performers, musicians, writers, and performers. It's a really fun night celebrating the artists of the Outer Cape to help support people in the Outer Cape. Tickets are $25 and can be purchased online at what.org. The Wellfleet Harbor Actors Theater is located on Route 6 in Wellfleet. The whole point of the holidays is giving, helping, and being part of the community, Ward said. The thing I love most about Yule for Fuel is this community celebrating our creative spirit in the name of helping with the holidays. Here are some other events happening on Cape Cod. Christmas Cavalcade for the Homeless at the Music Room in West Yarmouth. Back again for its 16th year, the Christmas Cavalcade for the Homeless comes to the Music Room on Saturday, December 16th in support of the Housing Assistance Corporation of Cape Cod. The Chandler Travis Philharmonic is joined by the Greenheads, the Invincible Casuals, the Cyclones, Woof Woof Meow, the David Roth Slide Whistle Consortium, Polka Dan and No Beatbox Band, Blue Central, and The Buttercups, hosted by Ding Donnelly. The Christmas Cavalcade will be held at 6 p.m. on Sunday, December 17th at the Music Room on Main Street in West Yarmouth. Tickets are $35 to $50 and can be purchased online at musicroomcapecodtickets.com. Chatham Chorale sings A Candlelight Christmas. The Chatham Chorale and Chamber Singers invite you to a performance of festive singing during A Candlelight Christmas. Joe Marcino leads the group, plus an accompanying orchestral ensemble, vocal soloists, and Donald Enos, chorale accompanist on piano and organ, as the group returns to Chatham's first congregational church. Alongside carols, such as the First Noel, Part one of Handel's Messiah joins the program for this year's show. Handel's Hallelujah Chorus will also be performed. A Candlelight Christmas has three shows at 2 p.m. on Saturday, December 16th and 2 and 5 p.m. on Sunday, December 17th. Tickets for the show are $25 and can be purchased by emailing info at chathamchorale.org or at the door. Chatham's First Congregational Church is located on Main Street in Chatham. Solstice Singers Welcome Longest Night in Woods Hole The Solstice Singers channel the spirit of the Renaissance in Sing for the Coming of the Longest Night, a pageant of songs, carols, instrumentals, drama, and dance. Celebrating Christmas and the winter solstice, the Solstice Singers will be joined by the Ensemble Pasigalia, Les Enfants du Soleil, along with three dance teams, the Vineyard Swordfish, Nobska Lights, and the Woods Hole Morris Dancers. This year's program includes a mix of Solstice Singers' popular picks, such as We Wish You a Merry Christmas, and Lord of the Dance, along with some new selections. Ensemble Pasacagalia will play several instrumental pieces and accompany the singers on some numbers, and Les Enfants du Soleil will join in singing and dancing. Traditional dances, such as the Morris Dance and traditional longsword dance, will be performed by the three dance groups as well. 
The mummers play questions friend or foe as St. George decides if he should slay the dragon or befriend it as the theme of death or winter, followed by renewal or spring, is pondered. The solstice singers sing for the coming of the longest night takes place at 4 p.m. on Saturday, December 16th and Sunday, December 17th at the Woods Hole Community Hall on Water Street in Woods Hole. Tickets are $25 for adults, $10 for students, and can be bought online at solstice-singers.org. Provincetown's towny holiday extravaganza features 25 Cape-based performers. As its 60th season comes to an end, the Provincetown Theater hosts its sixth annual towny holiday extravaganza until Sunday, December 17th. Hosted by Tawny Hawthorne, 25 Cape-based performers, including Kenny Lockwood, Trish LaRose, and Sue Goldberg, will spread Yuletide cheer through song, dance, comedy, stories, and music. Shows start at 7 p.m. on December 15th and 16th, and 2 p.m. on December 17th at the Provincetown Theater on Bradford Street. Tickets are $25 for adults, free for kids, and can be purchased online at provincetowntheater.org or by calling the box office. Going to Town, the great department stores of the past in Osterville. Learn about the rebuilding of Boston following the Boston Fire of 1872 and the resulting change in the shopping landscape through a lecture with Anthony Samarco at the Osterville Village Library. Samarco will guide audience members through the famous department stores dotted around Boston in the 19th century after the fire and commercial buildings replaced residential ones. The lecture will take place at 1 p.m. on Saturday, December 16th, and is free to attend. The Osterville Village Library is located on Wiano Avenue in Osterville. Holidays in Space with Cape Cod Concert Band in Hyannis. Celebrate the holidays and a trip around the galaxy with the Cape Cod Concert Band for Holidays in Space, music to celebrate the season and the spheres. The show begins on Earth with Fanfare for the Third Planet by Richard Saucedo then moves the audience into outer space with Brian Balmages to Dance Among the Stars, Sizgi by Michael Kalmuff, and Mission Apollo by Tyler Grant. In between trips to the moon and stars, holiday tunes such as Twas the Moon in Wintertime by Robert W. Smith, A Rollicking Hanukkah by Randall Standridge, and closing song Holiday Jambalaya by James Jose will keep the audience down on earth in festive cheer. Holidays in Space is free to attend and donations are welcomed. The show starts at 2 p.m. on Saturday, December 16th at the Knight Auditorium at Barnstable High School on West Main Street in Hyannis. Spotlight on Hidden Jewels. Metzaluna is the 2023 Restaurant of the Year by Denise Coffey of the Cape Cod Times. Dateline Buzzards Bay. Pictures take center stage in the entry to Metzaluna Restaurant on Main Street. They show the family behind the storied restaurant, the woman who founded it 86 years ago, and the long line of siblings, spouses, sons and daughters who have cooked, waited tables, washed dishes, tended bar, served at functions, 
and did whatever needed doing to keep the place running. Consistency and teamwork, those are what keep customers coming back. According to owner Emilio John, or EJ, Kubelis II, the third generation owner who has done every job in the 9,000 square foot Italian restaurant for decades. I think it's a very common sense business, Kubelis said. You must remember what you want when you go out. You want a nice meal. You want good service. You want a nice drink. You want people to smile and you want people to leave happy. Teamwork, consistency, and recipes handed down from his grandmother, Speranza Kubelis, have landed the restaurant rave reviews and a bevy of satisfied customers. This year, the restaurant was awarded the 2023 Restaurant of the Year by the Retailers Association of Massachusetts. John Hurst, president and CEO of the association, said the award recognized Mezzaluna for its leadership in the industry, the community partnerships formed, strong customer support, and its resilience through difficult times. We created the awards to put a spotlight on hidden jewels, Hearst said. Locals know about them and support and embrace them. The award winners are doing something right. Humble beginnings. On a Sunday drive in 1937, Speranza Kubelis found she could make five cents more per tomato in Buzzards Bay than at her produce stand in Woonsocket, Rhode Island. That day, she signed a six-month contract to rent a building where the restaurant now stands. 48 hours later, she had a produce stand out front. Speranza started offering room and board to construction workers and troops coming to Camp Edwards during the buildup to World War II, Kubelis said. Eventually, she was encouraged to open a restaurant because boarders said her cooking was so good. Recipes for her tomato, marinara, and meat sauce, lasagna, eggplant, and minestrone soup formed the foundation of many of the Mezzaluna's dishes, her grandson said. The Kubelis family included Speranza, Leonida, and their five children, EJ's father Johnny, his two brothers and two sisters. They lived in the same building as the restaurant. As the restaurant prospered and the family grew, Speranza purchased land around the building. They were humble and hardworking people, Kubelis said. Every time they made a little money, they bought a piece of property. What used to be a clam shack is now a Kubelis restaurant, Leo's Breakfast. Speranza bought an apartment building and parcels of land. Family homes are built on land that stretches to the Buzzards Bay Bypass. That concentration of family meant there was always someone nearby who could be called on to help with dishwashing, cleaning, bussing, and waiting tables. It wasn't all easy going. Father and son had their share of arguments, Kubelis said. Once, his father Johnny didn't speak to him for a week and a half after EJ put mussels in a garlic wine sauce as a special. Johnny insisted that mussels only be served in marinara sauce. Do you know what it's like rolling 300 meatballs standing next to a guy who won't say a word to you, he asked. Only when his father learned that the dish was outperforming the marinara muscle dish did he relent. Sell them how you want to sell them, Kubelis recalled his father saying. He credits a team of 57 for the restaurant's reputation. Two of the six chefs have been with him for 28 years. One longtime employee cared for him when he was a baby. The general manager, a 27-year employee, was tending bar that night. You do what you have to do, Kubelis said. Resilience in times of trouble. 
A seven-alarm fire destroyed the building in 2007, but it was rebuilt and opened within 18 months. The construction project began based on a handshake between the Kubelis family and builder Jim Halliday. They went ahead with the plan, not knowing the full costs. And when they opened, they made sure to hang family photos on the walls so customers would know the same owners were in charge. All 26 employees returned to work, Kubelis said. When the COVID-19 pandemic struck in 2020, the restaurant tried to do takeout, but no one wants a rack of lamb to go, Kubelis said. Worry caused him sleepless nights. His wife, Bernadette, finally told him to close the restaurant. Four months later, it reopened. All but two employees returned to their jobs. Hearst noted the restaurant's strong support from local consumers, its long history, and its resilience in the face of difficulties, as an example of a small business that bounced back, that did things right for many generations. I don't think you can point to a tougher three-year stretch than from 2020 to 2023, Hirsch said. Those surviving and thriving are doing it right. One major problem for small businesses is many don't have family to pass it on to. That's not the case with Mezzaluna. Mezzaluna was passed to Cabellus' father, Emilio John. Now it's in EJ's hands. While EJ doesn't cook as much these days, he steps in when needed. Otherwise, he's running the business, calling his vendors daily. Perhaps by the time his daughter, Gianna Rose, graduates from Johnson & Wales University with her culinary arts and restaurant management degrees, he'll be able to put the restaurant into the hands of a younger Kubelis. We close today with a poem from the monthly Cape Cod Times Poetry Contest. This is written by Julie Hosworth who grew up in New England and now lives in Tampa with her husband and two sons. A former educator, Julie writes picture books in addition to poetry. Her family has owned a small cottage in Yarmouth for four generations, and she visits every summer with her boys. While she doesn't live on the Cape year-round, it has always felt like home. Julie's inspiration for her poem, Moon and Sea, comes from her children's love of exploring the flats at low tide. Moon and Sea by Julie Hawsworth. High tide hugs the shoreline tight. The sun beats down at noon. Something shifts beneath the waves, a force pulled by the moon. Tidal pools start to appear as water flows away. Now hermit crabs and moon snails can crawl along the bay. Low tide beckons, come and see. The beach grows by a mile, revealing hidden habitats for just a little while. Moon would never leave behind her dear old friend, the sea. Invisible, she pulls the waves to where high tide should be. Moon and sea go back and forth all through each night and day, a bond that lasts forever in the tides of Cape Cod Bay. And that's all I have time for today. This is your reader Libby saying thank you for listening.